Welcome to The World in 10, the big news stories of the day explained and analysed by The Times of London. I'm Eleanor Shearwood. Today, we'll start by looking at the decisions faced by the man in charge of Israel. As I record this, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is meeting with his cabinet. One of the items on the agenda is naming the war in Gaza. Now, he previously tried to get people to call it the Iron Swords War, which didn't catch on with the public. Now, he prefers the Genesis War. But Angel Pfeffer, who's been covering the conflict for The Times, reckons it's an attempt to convince the public that what's happening in Gaza has nothing to do with his long-term management of Israel. Well, Netanyahu isn't backing down over this conflict. That's him there saying the war would go on until all of Israel's goals are achieved. If that's the case, Anshul says there's a lot of decisions ahead for the PM, most pressing on scaling down the ground offensive in Gaza. Even without a ceasefire, with many Hamas strongholds pulverised and other cities occupied, the style of warfare will have to shift, likely becoming more mobile. Another decision will be whether to agree to another temporary truce to secure the release of more hostages. Although the last one was seen as a success, Netanyahu dithered over it and didn't really take a side. And then there's the issue of whether to allow more humanitarian aid into Gaza, which will also prove divisive. The far right will want their PM to stick to hard statements about no aid, like at the start of the war. On the other side, there's pressure from the US to do more to help civilians. And Friday's UN Security Council votes will only add to this. We've heard from Sir Mark Lowcock, former head of the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. It's a role known as the Relief Chief, and he explained why this aid is so important. Much of Gaza, particularly northern Gaza, parts of central Gaza, even bits of southern Gaza, has essentially been reduced to a huge pile of rubble. There is a desperate shortage of all life's essentials, food, medical supplies, clean water, and that's why you're hearing more and more from humanitarian agencies about growing malnutrition problems and warnings that unless there is a big increase in aid, ultimately what happens if you have a very large population of human beings in a very small area which is besieged and they can't produce any of their own food, ultimately they simply starve. That's the logic of it. And that's why UN agencies are issuing these um, warnings about potential famine if this uh, this kind of blockade continues and why there is such a global focus now on a lot more humanitarian aid getting in. In the piece, Anshul argues that Netanyahu's next moves will determine not only what happens in the war, but also his political fate, legacy and perhaps even his liberty. You can read it in full online now. Back in June, the world was gripped, waiting for news of the Titan submersible, the vessel which went down to explore the wreck of the Titanic and never resurfaced. On board were three passengers, a guide and the CEO of OceanGate, the company who built Titan. Four days after the sub was due to return, the US Coast Guard announced all five had died from a catastrophic implosion, crushed under pressure. 
In this week's Sunday Times magazine, Matthew Campbell takes a look at the shifting narrative surrounding the tragedy. It's becoming less about the risks of heading into the depths of the ocean and more centred on maritime explorers. They're blaming the negligence of OceanGate's CEO, Richard Stockton Rush. My World in 10 colleague Stuart Willey has been reading the piece and is with me here now. Stuart, could you tell me and the listeners about Richard Stockton Rush? Well, he was the son of a marine commando and big game hunter, so adventuring and exploring was in his genes. And from a very young age, he was an overachiever. In his early teens, he started scuba diving. By 19, he had his pilot's license. Essentially, he fancied himself as a bit of a Captain Kirk. Now, he founded OceanGate in 2009 with an Argentinian businessman whose other projects include colonising Venus. So I think you get the maverick nature of the two men. By 2015, the company was taking passengers to shipwrecks, but not going down more than 500 metres. Mr Rush's fascination with the Titanic, though, led him on a mission to want to explore the wreck. And in his quest to get there, he cut corners, he broke rules and he ignored warnings. Building the Titan sub, he refused to work with maritime authorities that would vet any decision-making. I think a quote from an interview he did last year sums it up, really. He said, at some point, safety is just pure waste. If you just want to be safe, don't get out of bed. But surely even if Richard Rush was cutting corners, there would have been safety officers at Ocean Gate. Absolutely, there were. A safety report was carried out on the Titan when it was completed in 2018. The 10-page report, it was bad. It said there were loose seals, missing bolts, and the floor was made from highly flammable material. The writer of the report, David Lockridge, was the safety officer at Ocean Gate at the time. He recommended a full scan of the hull, Before any test dives, they didn't happen. What did happen, though, is that David was fired. He and his wife, who had nothing to do with the Titan, were taken to court by OceanGate's CEO. I see. And the piece also talks about the other passengers on board. How much did they know about OceanGate and Titan's tests? Well, they spent about eight days on the Titan's mothership, attending lectures by their guide and by Mr Rush. But obviously this was all part of the Ocean Gate experience, so we don't really know how much they knew about the tests and the state of the Titan. The piece does quote Asmay Darwood, whose father Shazada and brother Suleiman were among the people who died on board. She says the waiver her father and brother signed mentioned death at least eight times. Wow, and... How has this tragedy affected the maritime exploring industry? Well, this is a small and close-knit industry. Almost all of the experts were concerned that Richard Rush's maverick ways would bring disrepute to the industry, and there's some evidence of this. Patrick Leahy is the CEO of Triton, another company that makes submarines. He's being asked by clients what makes his submarines different from the Titan. In the piece, he says the Titan should never have had human beings on board and that the bar for making certified submarines is incredibly high. North Korea firing missile tests isn't uncommon, but when a nuclear warhead has the potential to hit anywhere in America, it's a real reminder of the threats the country possesses. Kim Jong-un's fired another long-range ballistic missile. It's a response to an American nuclear submarine docking at a port in South Korea. And it brings up the question again of how South Korea and the US should handle North Korean aggression. The previous South Korean leader, Moon Jae-in, was a member of the Democratic Party of Korea and rarely chose to react. President Yoon Suk-yeol from the People's Power Party has led the country since last year and takes a different approach. Richard Lloyd Parry is the Times Asia editor and told us how that's working out. 
under the current South Korean president, Yoon Suk-yeol, they are choosing very, very consciously to react to everything. And the hope is that then North Korea will be less inclined to throw its weight around. In practice, that, that hasn't happened. What has been happening is that when the Americans and the South Koreans, for example, flaunt a nuclear submarine, the North Koreans fire off an intercontinental ballistic missile. So it's almost as if you're getting into this cycle of reaction and counter-reaction. It's looking more and more like a vicious cycle rather than shows of strength that quell North Korean aggression. North Korea's state news agency described the sub's arrival as reckless military provocation. It also said it triggered what it called a preview of a nuclear war. With 2024 just around the corner, I wanted to talk about Paris, the city hosting next year's Olympics. President Macron is promising a Games for the People, but the city's seen a range of price hikes. The cost of taking the metro will double during the Games, that's Paris's underground rail network. Hotels are going up threefold for July, and now even admiring the Mona Lisa will cost more. The painting's home, the Louvre, has said it will be increasing its ticket price by 30% from January. That's from €17 to €22. Critics are saying the museum is reserving itself for the elite. But Times contributor Charles Bremner told us why the decision was made. The Louvre says this has nothing to do with the Olympic Games, of course. It's to do with their own long-term needs to raise more finance. And also the Louvre says it wants to reduce its overall number of visitors. So it's a deterrence in a way. They say that there there are just too many visitors. They've set a limit at 30,000 a day. It was over 40,000 a day before the pandemic. You can read more on all these stories by taking out an online subscription at thetimes.co.uk. And all that's left for me to say is thank you for taking 10 minutes to stay on top of the world with the help of The Times of London. See you tomorrow. 